Uh, thank you so much for logging on to the RACE 2020 exciting session on the future of work. Uh, RACE is all about responsible artificial intelligence for social empowerment. And this event has galvanized a number of speakers across the world to participate in, share their thoughts, share their views, share their learnings and share their suggestions on how we can take AI for social good. How beyond being an instrument for economic growth and technological growth, AI can empower people and enable everybody to benefit because of a rapidly changing world due to technology. As all of you are aware, technology is changing the very shape of the world that we are living in. It is changing the way you are experiencing the world. It is changing the way the world is experiencing you. Uh, 3D printing, robotics, IoT devices, miniaturized electronics, augmented virtual reality, artificial intelligence, all of these are coming together along with affordable, accessible, available, and very advanced technologies sweeping the landscape. In a country like India, this is even more pertinent with 1.3 billion people in our country, with over 65% of our country under 35 years old, with what we call as a demographic dividend, with 150 to 200 million young students entering into the workplace over the next five to 10 years. How are we going to ensure that this 1.3 billion people who are dependent upon this 150 to 200 million young students entering into the workplace are empowered in order to be able to carry on their responsibilities and build a nation, not only from an economic point of view, but also from a social point of view. It calls us all to discuss and deliberate on the future of work, how these emerging technologies can be assimilated into the workforce. Is AI going to do good or is there another side of AI which is going to create problems? And that requires us not only to deliberate, but also to prepare ourselves and see how we can avoid the problems that AI can create and how we can amplify the good that AI can benefit not only people in India, but across the rest of the world. I'd now like to introduce the panel uh, speakers. Um, we have a very distinguished line of speakers here today, and I'd like to share a little bit about their profile. Uh, Mr. Prashant Patak, uh, he's the CEO of Ekagrata Inc. Uh, Mr. Prashant Shankar Pathak, President and CEO of Ekagrata Inc., a principal investment company, is a leading name in Canada. Known for his expertise on international management and uh, operations, strategy and product development. He has advised numerous global corporations on a wide range of operational issues across North America, South America, and Europe. He also serves as the managing partner of Reichman Haar uh, Capital Partners, a Canadian private equity firm, and is the chairman of Venture Capital and Investments Committee, BDC Venture Capital, which is Canada's largest VC program. The government of Canada has also appointed Mr. Pathak on the board of BDC Business Development Bank of Canada. In 2008, he was listed as one of the Canada's top 40 under 40 by Caldwell Partners. We are also privileged to have Mr. Julian Barbier, co-founder and CEO at the Holberton School. Julian Barbier is a co-founder and CEO at Holberton School. Prior to Holberton School, he worked as a senior director of growth, marketing and community at Docker Inc. Barbier holds a master's degree from ESLSCA and is a Master of Computer Sciences in Engineering Computer and from, from Epitech. We are delighted to have Mr. Sridhar Vembu, Zoho founder. He is the CEO of Zoho Corporation, formerly AdventNet Inc. Mr. Sridhar is uh, 
the company, this company has been behind the Zoho suite of online applications. Prior to AdventNet, Sridhar worked as a wireless system engineer at Qualcomm, where he was fortunate to work with some of the leading minds in wireless communications. Uh, we are also delighted to have Dr. Urvashi Aneja, who is a co-founder and director of Tandem Research in India. Urvashi Aneja is the founding director of Tandem Research. She works on the governance and sociology of emerging technology, Southern Partnerships for Humanitarian and Development Assistance, and the Power and Politics of Global Civil Society. We are privileged to have Mr. Rajiv Sodhi, Chief Operating Officer, Microsoft India. Rajiv Sodhi, COO, Microsoft India, is focused on empowering customers to transform their businesses with the interplay of cloud and other, other digital-first technologies by driving organization-wide operational efficiencies and a culture of collaboration. Prior to this role, he was leading the transformation of Microsoft's partner ecosystem in India and was accountable for their startups and small and mid-sized businesses. In 2012, he started GoDaddy in India with an empowering goal of bringing an entire nation online. Prior to GoDaddy, he spent over 11 years at Microsoft, which shaped most of his career and was instrumental in giving him diverse experiences. We're also delighted to have Mr. Raji Malhotra, researcher and author speaker. Born in 1950, Raji Malhotra is an Indian American researcher, writer, speaker, and public intellectual on current affairs as they relate to civilizations, cross-cultural encounters, religion, and science. He studied physics at the St. Stephen's College in Delhi and went on to do his postgraduate studies in physics and then computer science in the USA. Rajiv serves has served in multiple careers, including software development executive, Fortune 100 senior corporate executive, strategic consultant, and successful entrepreneur in the information technology and media industries. At the peak of his career, when he owned 20 companies in several countries, he took early retirement at the age of 44 to pursue philanthropy, research, and public service. So we are having a fantastic panel, a very diverse panel with diverse experiences, and I'm sure this is going to be a very interesting, enlightening, and a thought-provoking session. Uh, Sridhar, are you there, Sridhar Bembu? Um, what do you see as the concerns about artificial intelligence and work possibilities for both the present and the future of AI? Uh, it would be great to hear from you. Um, first of all, I would like to say, I mean, as uh, uh, AI is, I see it as a continuum of technologies that we have already been on a technology adoption curve in the world for the last one, 250 years. So I don't see it as something fundamentally different from it. And certainly the, the AGI where it's going to replace humans in a full sense, I don't believe people who know that technology think that that's anywhere close. So that's not a fear as a software engineer, I'm not that worried about that prospect being replaced. But and coming to jobs, I mean, the, the question about jobs really ultimately comes down to, I mean, let's do this thought experiment. Let's take, uh, imagine a machine and, you know, in uh, science fiction, like uh, Star, Star uh, Trek series, you have the replicator, uh, for those of you who's familiar with this, that which can produce anything that you want, essentially anytime you want, right? So at free of cost. Imagine that such a machine were to exist. Well, would the 
absolutely nobody needs to do any work because everybody could just get a machine but what would people do right even in that environment ultimately it comes down to whether you can afford the goods or not comes down to whether you have access to the machine for example if you select people who own the machine and and they control the supply of goods and other people don't have access even if the goods are made free of cost well many people may not have access to the goods because the people who have the ownership of the machines don't share it with them so that's that question is not really a technical question at that point it's a political or political economy question right if you had access to such a technology well would would broad mass of people have access to the fruits of that machine or would only a select few have that it's not really a technical question at that point it's really a political economy question it's a distribution of resources question and jobs are a mechanism by which we distribute the fruits of uh, all the productivity and and the human capacity to invent jobs is infinite for example in japan right now there are jobs for you can hire a friend to come go out for a tea and talk to you for half an hour for one hour and they charge some 15 or 20 dollars an hour for that service where you simply go and talk to them for an hour or two they listen to you and they'll be very sympathetic all of that and it's a lonely society and there is a market for this service i mean you wouldn't think in indian context that such a thing merits a service and a, and a business and a business model and revenue all of that but such a thing exists in japan and i can imagine for example in this context where i am in a, in a village in southern india there are a lot of peacocks around our national bird i can imagine peacock caretaking jobs in when we are a very rich society where we can afford all kinds of goods easily taking care of peacocks could actually be jobs right and right now nobody does that job there is no jobs like that and so i am not actually personally worried that jobs will be a problem as long as we have a, a reasonable political economy that is that is uh, that balances the various interests well and uh, and the lot of the world's problems come from a uh, a faulty distribution network in correct political economy rather than technology causing the problem itself technology is neutral in this value neutral you know and like the machine i mentioned the hypothetical machine such a machine doesn't exist but even if such a machine existed i would not worry about jobs because we can always invent jobs to distribute the fruits for example we can have uh, you know lots of musicians who sing for other people and and they with that with that limited amount of work that they do limited amount of hours they sing they can get a make a very good living so it is not a problem of jobs it's a problem of distribution of the fruits of technology in that sense as a technologist that we want to create technologies that are that make us more productive produce with less effort but we also need a sociology and political economy all of that right so that people can live lead purposeful fruitful lives and that also includes a spiritual component i'm anticipating uh, uh, dr mahotra's uh, thing here because that is also important we cannot forget that that man does not live by bread alone purely materialistic focus cannot make us happy so we need a holistic focus that includes technology that includes uh, the political economy the sociology all of it then i think we can achieve a just distribution of the fruits of the technology and that applies to ai technology that applies to anything that makes us very productive as far as the question that is some uh, robots going to decimate the human race and uh, and completely wipe us out of the planet i'd say it's far more likely that we humans being 
through our own stupid actions may wipe ourselves out rather than some robot doing it to us okay so i'm not worried about that possibility either so that's uh, all i have to say and thank you very much from there i would like to go to miss um, urvashi uh, urvashi uh, taking on this question or the suggestion that he said what's a reasonable political economy and in this context i'd like you to share do you think job displacement through ai or automation is a real threat particularly for countries with a large labor surplus i mean like india or or other parts of africa and emerging economies and for already marginalized groups i mean we have a lot of marginalized groups who are uh, 22% of a country still below the poverty line and we want to make sure that they come out of the poverty line so this is a real fear that many people have that artificial intelligence can displace jobs or they may never find jobs because they don't have the skills and they don't have the capacity to acquire those new skills um i do think i do think that the threat to job displacement is real um particularly for countries like india where you have a large amount of your of your population that is low to medium skilled a very small popular part of your population has high skill labor so if you look at uh, even what some of the earlier speakers were pointing to that it's that low to medium skill jobs that are like that are likely to be threatened by automation right and the high skill jobs are more secure so in a country like india where a large part of your labor is within that low to medium skill category there is a real threat of job displacement and i think more than also job displacement what's really relevant in the indian context is that i think there is a threat to possibilities for upward socio economic mobility right so if you think of you think of your labor that is within the informal sector of the economy and sees that clerical job or sees that job in a retail um retail outfit as aspirational or sees that job in a call center as aspirational those entry level jobs within the formal sector is the way for them to break out of the poverty trap right but as those jobs get automated where what happens to that space right what are those opportunities for upward socio economic mobility and especially in a country like india where you have a huge huge youth population that is very very aspirational and that is connected uh and exposed to the best of what is available in the world so how do you respond to those aspirations i think is a key challenge for uh indian policy makers going forward um i think the as as the only woman on the panel i i should make the, i should certainly take the the moment to make this point uh that women are particularly susceptible to the impacts of automation uh if you look at industries in india and globally women are the ones who occupy those entry level jobs and those jobs are where we likely see automation happen first right so the garment industry is a very good example of this um and it's the same for other marginalized social groups as well because they have had they historically not have had access to education educational and work opportunities that have allowed them uh, to move upward socio economically those ma marginalized social groups will likely to see the impacts uh, the detrimental impacts more pronounced for them right um i think there is a new kind of work that is being created that we often don't speak about and that is the kind of invisible low wage labor that is actually fueling the ai industry uh, so all the high value ai work is happening in very select geographies in the world in countries like india what we see is that large masses of individuals are engaged in menial tasks like data annotation right um and sure data annotation could be thought of as a step up 
from manual labor uh, and the association with technology is aspirational for many. So I'm not trying to, um, to say that that data annotation industry does not present an opportunity, but I think that Indian policymakers and other policymakers in the global south really need to consider what is the future of the data annotation industry. Uh, if you look at developments such as GPT-3, uh, the importance of big data is likely to decline. The importance of computational power is likely to increase. The, computation, the importance of storage capacities is likely to increase. And neither of those are something which India currently has an adequate capacity in. So if data annotation is where we're expecting to move that low-skill labor from agriculture, for an example, into these industries, we really need to think about the future of that industry in itself, right? And think about 25 years from now, what is that industry going to look like 25 years from now? Um, and of course, the question is that, is this good work? Is this decent work? Um, and I think that that's something that we need to think about as well. Um, I think the, 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 the trouble also is that we won't be able to skill fast enough. There's a lot of talk about upgrading skills, about reskilling, but can we do it fast enough? And even if we can do it fast enough, the same people who lose their jobs will not be the same people who will get the new jobs. There will certainly be a generational gap. That 50-year-old who has lost his job because he has not been able to upskill is not going to be that data scientist, right? There is going to be a job loss and there is a generational issue that we need to think about. Um, so I think, and, and I'll conclude with that, right, that I think... Efficiency gains are very important. Productivity gains are very, very important. There's no doubt about that. And like the other speakers have pointed out, it can lead to an increase in economic growth. It can lead to GDP growth. But efficiency gains cannot be the only metric, specifically for labor surplus countries like India. So for a labor surplus country like India, the choices we have to make are not the same as the choices in an industrialized economy. We have to recognize that we have a huge youth population that is aspirational, that is not does not match learning outcomes even to meet current industry requirements right so we when we think about a national policy for ai we really need to think beyond the efficiency gains into thinking about the aspiration of this youth population and are we able to meet that demand right so I think the, the point here is that these choices are different in different countries, depending on the composition of your labor market. And it's very important that countries like India and in the global south recognize this and make policies that speak to those realities, right? Um, and maybe one, sorry, I said that was my final point, but this is now actually my final point. I think the one point that often also does not get looked at in conversations around AI, we typically focus on the job issue, but AI is also being used for hiring people. It's also being used to match skills and industries it's also being used to evaluate performance and while that has tremendous potential i think we also need to re recognize that ai can also reproduce existing societal inequities so if you have a hiring based system that recognizes certain skills as valuable there'll be certain sections of society that are able to ha that have those skills already so there is a real danger of reproducing those inequities right so i feel that these policies the national policy for ai in the workplace must be much better situated and reflective of the realities of the Indian labor market. Thank you. Uh, but I'd like Rajiv Sodhi now, uh, how can technology play a role in preparing employees for the new world of work? And can it play a role and exactly address some of the gaps that Urvashi is saying that use technology to solve the technology created problem, right? And what are some of the ways in which organizations can help their employees thrive in a digital future? And I like to, you to take a perspective, not just from uh, IT or ITES sort of uh, environment or employer, 
but look at uh, you know the retail look at the agri market look at the healthcare hospitals and so on when you look at all of that how would you respond to the current situation first of all uh, ramanan thanks uh, for uh, giving us the opportunity to be here i think great panel here uh, and also as as probably the only representative from the business community Uh, which has been labeled as the people who are creating the hype uh, on ai <laughs> like let me just uh, let me just offer some perspective i think first of all great points and great discussion till now um i, I think what what we've seen is uh, as rightly pointed out even earlier right it's not just about ai but a set of technologies that uh, which 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 have been accelerating i think that digital transformation has been happening for some time now covid certainly accelerated it i mean we have now uh, used this term to say we are seeing two years of uh, digital transformation in businesses happening in just two months uh, uh, right because when the pandemic struck everyone was expected uh, everyone just adopted to technology uh, and using technology to stay in touch to maintain their business uh, to run that right that was happening it was virtually overnight and i want to share uh, you know the the work we've been doing with our customers whether it was frontline workers hospitals uh, you know our own uh, customers which are enterprise or even the small and medium business uh, virtually everywhere there was this need to either use remote working right uh, or get access to their information or security which started coming up much much later so i think it's it is inevitable uh, that you will have technology acceleration uh, acceleration happen I think this issue around uh, jobs uh, I think Urvashi rightly pointed out you know it's a labor surplus market in India right uh, but I think I believe the issue is not about jobs the issue is about skills right if you have skills I'll give you a job uh, AI or no AI I I think you need to have skill for somebody to be employable and that to be then consumed in that uh, pieces and I think today the need of the hour is that you have to have digital skilling here digital skills are the need uh, that uh, you know we have to obviously all of us do a job now this is such a massive problem that i actually believe there is no one company which can do on its own um we've been working on this for years uh, you know partnering both between government with academia i mean uh, even if you look at digital skills in the country today uh, you know the youth of the country so nsdc we partnered with nsdc to train over 1 million uh, youth you know 750000 have already been uh, happening you know students Uh, that is happening which is uh, their teachers uh, which is there we are now partnering with isb to train business leaders as was being discussed that it's not just coding you need problem solving skills uh, you know so so you need business leaders who can understand the impact of technology and how to apply that uh, in their business we recently announced a, a, a you know a digital skilling initiative which actually does three things back to this issue around jobs and skill it identifies you know with linkedin it identifies what are the jobs in demand um across the economy and what skills are needed right and once you know these are the skills that are needed it then provides through linkedin learning here are the skills that you need and here is the learning path for that right both for knowledge workers and frontline workers and then once it's given you that learning path it then we then provide the certification so that you can have certified skill and you are going to be then employable in the country but i think the real issue is you, you can't do this alone you have to partner across the ecosystem to make sure every aspect of skill which is relevant uh, is coming together uh, over there i think finally there are uh, you know shridhar said it right technology is neutral right uh, but the question is how long can technology be neutral uh, right and and what what do we call as neutral 
you know, we talk about bias in AI. The bias in one part of India is very different from bias in another part of India, let alone the world, <laughs> right? So, uh, but I think it's important that we recognize that with great power, which is technology, right? It also comes great responsibility, which is a cliche, I know. Uh, but, uh, and, and in the company today at, at Microsoft, we've instituted uh, an initiative which we call as Responsible AI, uh, which basically says, hey, you must be developing these great systems, but how do we make sure these systems are fair, they are free, free from bias, they are transparent, uh, you know, they are accountable to what they are doing, people can trust these systems, that's huge, because otherwise these systems are of no use. And it's not just Microsoft which has to do it, we're also creating the platform such that other people can test whether their systems are coming up in this manner or not. Now, we all know AI is created by developers. So we've actually released a toolkit where any software developer can release their code uh, and test whether it is free from bias or is it getting exposed to certain kinds of bias. So that, you know, we are also enabling the entire ecosystem to create technology which can be used. Here. So I'll pause here, uh, Ravanan, but, you know, I actually firmly believe um, what is happening today in the world is going to accelerate, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the sort of how technology is getting used. I think our responsibility is make sure that these systems are using the technology responsibly and we are skilling the ecosystem because this skilling is actually absolutely a dire need, which all of us have to work towards. I'll pass it back to you. Excellent. Excellent. Rajiv, I think, uh, I think you very beautifully brought out that jobs, you know, require skills and skills uh, without skills, you don't have jobs. And whether it is AI or not AI, you still need to acquire the skills. Rajiv, uh, yeah, yeah, please go ahead. I want to comment uh, on uh, uh, Carl mentioned that he, he, he feels that the Luddite fallacy uh, will play out again in the case of AI. And the Luddite fallacy was that, you know, revolutions create, uh, destroy jobs and uh, it cre they create misery. Uh, the, the, it, it's a, that's a fallacy. Uh, the Luddites believe that, and, and the fallacy is that actually you create more jobs and there's more prosperity. So he feels that that will happen in the, with AI. I, I want to explain that the Luddite fallacy, why, why it won't apply in the case of AI. Uh, and, and while we say that, uh, you know, whenever there's a, whenever there's a, a, a disruption, the disruption can create a disequilibrium. The whole equilibrium of things can fall apart. And of course, there'll be a new equilibrium. But the new equilibrium will not be the same winners, same losers. It will be new haves and have-nots. In the new equilibrium, there will be new haves and have-nots. Uh, there may be new jobs, but not the social, same social demographics. Uh, the, the, the jobs in Silicon Valley to make driverless cars uh, will, not, uh, will not be doing any good to people in Africa and India who are drivers who lose their jobs. So people will lose jobs in one geography and make jobs in another geography. The haves and have-nots between countries will be different. The Industrial Revolution, which was cited uh, by, by Carl as a great example of how you know, uh, things went on very nicely. But please remember that the Industrial Revolution took Britain, which was a very marginal economy, and made it into a world power, and took India, which was a world power economically, and made it into a colony. So the colonization is the result of the Industrial Revolution. So you cannot say that the Luddites were wrong and everything was fine because the old jobs were replaced by the new jobs. The point is that the new jobs went to England and the old jobs being destroyed were in India. So this is a huge example. Our own history tells you that the Luddite fallacy, uh, Luddite fallacy was actually, uh, you cannot call it a fallacy because in the long run, it affected our civilization. The, there is an intergenerational thing 
in the in the displacement of agriculture workers when agriculture was replaced by factories yes agri people lost agriculture jobs but they gained factory jobs however it happened very slowly compared to ai disruption today it happened over two generations so if i was in my 30s or 40s as a farmer i was not out of work i did not have to go running uh, get out of farm and get a job in the factory my children got factory jobs but the disruption of the farm was so slow that i could keep working on my farm until i retired the ai is so rapid that if i'm in my 30s and my job is disrupted i cannot say that you know i'll keep doing my job till i'm 60 and my kids will go and work in a in an ai capacity it's taking people mid career we have to think of different population segments those who are very young you can train them in ai and they'll be fine but what about those who are mid career who are mid career who are not capable of being retrained who are maybe not even well educated who are too slow to learn and the employers are not going to employ them and retrain them they'll rather employ young people so we are talking about the disruption across geographies within the same country because the new jobs will be created in one place and destroyed in another place we are talking about maybe the recolonization between some countries that are becoming very powerful united states china certain countries and china is already colonizing africa and ai is a large part of it china is already colonizing africa china is potentially colonizing pakistan so this this uh, concentration of wealth and concentration of power is is up for grabs whenever there is a disequilibrium and chaos of this magnitude yes there will be a new equilibrium yes there will be new jobs but there will be new haves and have nots new concentrations of power and this will be social disruption within a country political disruption between countries disruption intergenerational because one generation will lose jobs maybe their kids will be better off but the older what happens to the older people so this is this is uh, you know like i'll give you an example a real example uh, rajiv sondhi lives in gurgaon so i'll tell you about gurgaon what happened uh, when the developers when the land developers took over a lot of farmland in gurgaon suddenly the farmers made a lot of money so farmers couldn't do any farming but you know this crores and crores of money went to their sons the sons who were teenagers they they inherited all this money and a lot of crime a lot of the alcohol consumption a lot of the gundagardi in delhi came from the sons of farmers these guys were not well educated but they suddenly had a lot of money and with money no education no need to job they went around on on rampages so this is the social disruption that can happen you could say that on an average the gurgaon peasants did out did okay but intergenerationally one generation lost their occupation the next generation uh, uh, made out okay so this intergenerational thing we have to consider this is the problem that is particularly serious in the case of india because of a massive overpopulation uh, when you are disrupting such a huge equilibrium and and uh, creating a, a new equilibrium which may be one generation later i don't think that uh, that uh, the the loss of certain things and the replacement with other things will be simultaneous i think you will have asynchronous activities so things will be destroyed careers will be destroyed lives will be destroyed there will be a period of disruption and maybe a a, a generation later things will settle down and there will be a new equilibrium life will go on but in the meantime can india afford this at this point in time considering whatever else it's facing so this is this is a risk of recolonization the risk of uh, uh, you know fragmentation of society social breakdown of society i'm i'm a technocrat i love technology 
I want AI to succeed. The bot, my bottom, bottom line view is AI is good. We need it. But I feel that policymakers cannot ignore these risks. We cannot start with the one line statement, AI will create more jobs than it will destroy it. Done deal. I don't buy that. I think I've read all these reports. I've read a whole lot of reports that say that, but they are taking, uh, they are taking data and arguments from other countries and applying them to India. I think India's case is very unique. And, and before we make an axiom that AI will automatically create more jobs than it will destroy, we really need to take a hard look at it. And I have taken a hard look at it. I, I've written a book on it. And I would love to discuss the, my findings vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the, the axiom that uh, everybody is using, including Niti Aayog, that you know, it, AI will just create more jobs. And I'd like now uh, Dr. Malhotra to give his talk uh, that we have been waiting for before we close the session. Thank you very much. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm honored to be, uh, be here. Uh, let me make sure my, my slide is showing up. Uh, I, I guess it is. Uh, my, so um, uh, I, I'm writing a book which will come out. It's called Five Battlegrounds. And uh, the book takes five battlegrounds of AI, uh, one of which has to do with jobs and work. So since that's the panel I'm on, I'm going to limit myself to uh, the battleground of jobs and work. And I'll let you sort of speculate and guess what are the other four. So India has a very difficult and complex job of balancing the AI revolution. If you do too much, it could too much too quickly. The disruption will have will be too soon. And the reconstruction and positive aspects may not happen soon enough. And it may lead to unemployment. It may lead to social unrest. It may lead to exaggerating the inequities. If you don't do enough, then India will not be competitive. That's a, that's a serious problem that uh, also has to be avoided. So India will not be competitive in terms of products, services, defense. Defense is a very important thing I'm also discussing in this book. Now, there are these reassurances that say there'll be more jobs created than taken away. And I, would, I think so much is at stake. Millions of lives are at stake. Tens of millions of families are at stake. So we should, we should, uh, we should uh, do some due diligence and check it out carefully. Previous revolutions did not have so much capital available. And they, the, the breakthrough was not scalable. And it was not instantly globalized. So the speed of adoption was slow. If you look at the mechanization of farms, if you look at the first industrial revolution, in England, the second industrial revolution in England, all that. Compare the speed of adoption with today, today's technology, it's completely different because now you have huge institutions with capital. Suddenly the, a new solution can be scaled worldwide, globalized. And so the impact is rapid. And because the impact is rapid, it captures people, it traps people in mid-career. The mid-career worker, you cannot say, well, the next generation will do well with what happens to the mid-career worker. That person is not going to be easily migrated. You can, we can talk, I'll mention, a, I'll give you some data on uh, retraining, how realistic is retraining based on some surveys. Uh, so the worker obsolescence for those who are not easily trainable is pretty dramatic. And the impact based on my findings is going to be very severe for people in the low socio demographic, especially women. 
especially women, because a large part of these jobs which are easy to automate are by people who are otherwise also challenged uh, and, and women are a large part of that. The other thing to mention is that the labor share of GDP is declining. The labor share of GDP is declining. And there's a concentration of wealth. There are some lot of interesting studies on the concentration of wealth. How many, the top 1% own how much? What was it like 10 years ago? The top 10% own how much by country? And it's quite interesting. India has a serious problem with the concentration of wealth. Wealth uh, that'll actually get worse. So the new haves and the new have-nots will, will be different from the current haves and have-nots. And that's what every revolution does. It's an opportunity for some, but it's a problem for others. So we have to look, for the, we have to look out for those who are the least fortunate among us. That is, that is humanity. We have to do that. So I'm taking that kind of a view. Now, also, India is very different because in, the issue is India's population is so huge. To what extent are these... Uh, pro pro these opportunities scalable. Someone mentioned that uh, much of India is rural India and they are not part of urban India and they are not part of the organized uh, sector. They don't have a regular pay paycheck and they have their own ecosystem. This is fine. But I would like to mention there are estimated about 80 million migrant workers who come from the rural area to get jobs in the urban area and send money home. Their remittances, an average migrant worker supports three persons back in his village. So you may have a driver in Delhi or a maid, and they're supporting their parents, maybe the in-laws, maybe some children. So when 80 million people were out of work, or a large number of them due to COVID, it affected village economy. So if there is disruption in urban India, in the industrial part of India, it will affect rural India because these migrant workers will be affected. And if if 80 million times three, they're supporting on an average three persons, it's a few hundred million people are of Indian population that are making ends meet economically because they have a son who's a driver somewhere or a, or a daughter who's a maid or somewhere working in a factory. And we have a lot of, a lot of economic studies are done on migrant workers in the Middle East who send remittances, the NRIs or people in the US and various places but not, not, I haven't seen a single economic study on the phenomenon within India of India and sending money back. And so the future of AI impact, you must look at how it will affect rural India, especially through the, the, what happens to these migrant workers. And the migrant workers are doing you know, labor intensive jobs. So this is, this is an important thing. When you look at, uh, you, when you look at the uh, education standards in India, they're, they're, you know, we're talking about jumping onto AI, but actually even engineering graduates, even, uh, and, and many others, the, the education standard is not that great. A top 1% from IITs and so on are brilliant people. Most of them go overseas and they have, they have great careers elsewhere, or they're working in India for some Western companies as a subsidiary, in a subsidiary. Uh, the vast majority of Indian youth are not enjoying that. They are not part of that uh, nice lifestyle. So the vast majority are uh, not well educated. Uh, they, they're unemployed. This is unemployment is huge. Please note that the official statistics of unemployment in India do not include women because it's assumed they're homemakers and don't want to work. This is very interesting. I just learned. 
that the official statistics of India do not include women, unemployed women, because it's assumed that they just don't want to work. So if you were to include that, the official, the actual statistics would be very high. And then if you look at the unemployment of youth, you know, it's a very high unemployment. The number of uh, people entering the job age each year is several times more than the number of new jobs being created. So there, the problems are there. And then there is something called underemployment, which means that the person has a job, but they are they artificially created jobs. The government made jobs just to keep people uh, you know, employed. So there is also income inequality. If you look at income inequality, wealth inequality, it is not, uh, it is not getting fixed in India. It is, the problem is pretty serious. And this has nothing to do with AI. This is there anyway. AI will just exacerbate it. So I've already talked about uh, Bain, and, Bain and Company has done, uh, I think, a pretty good uh, view, which is uh, sympathetic to the labor. Uh, uh, the McKinsey reports and PricewaterhouseCooper and Ernst & Young and all of them, they are more sort of corporate view because the corporates pay them. Bain also works for corporates, but I must say that Bain has taken a very uh, labor-oriented view also. And according to them in the U.S., 20 to 30 million workers would be affected by 2030. It's jobs loss, wage pressure. So you won't lose your job, but wage pressure downwards because machines are doing this work. You cannot have uh, escalation of wages and wage inflation has been exceedingly low anyway. And then dramatic need for retraining. So let's talk about retraining. Now, a, a survey by the World Economic Forum. Now, I'm quoting World Economic Forum because they're usually pro-business, but here they're talking about the vulnerability of labor. They're saying that, uh, that nearly a quarter of the companies are undecided or unlikely to pursue retraining of existing employees. Okay, so which means that uh, 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 a lot of people have to just retrain themselves. The company doesn't have a official program per se. 33% said that they would, they would prioritize, only one third wanted to prioritize the, the employees who are most at risk, which means that the people who are most in need of reskilling and upskilling are not likely to get training from the corporate sector. This is true. I mean, if the if retraining is this panacea, we keep we retrain people. I would like to see budgets. I would like to see commitments. I would like to see the the the, for the auditing firms uh, take a look at what's the uh, future outlook of uh, employee redundancy and and if they want to retrain, have they set aside the money? The money will be in thousands of crores. It's not a simple job to retrain such a huge workforce. We can say retraining, but who's going to pay for it? That that has to be figured out. So the a year later, in the 2019 World Economic Forum, uh, New York Times uh, uh, went and did a survey of uh, uh, corporate people. And they said that here is what they wrote. They said that the corporate leaders talked a good game publicly on, on, on uh, that they're concerned about the negative consequences of AI. They talked a good game in public. But in private, they had a different story. They were just interested in automating as much as they can, as fast as they can to keep up with competition. So this business of uh, the corporate talk about, you know, we will retrain, don't worry, uh, is nice to hear, but I would like to see them put their money where their mouth is. I would like to see them quantify. I would like to see them reserve money, just like they are asked to reserve for pension. They should reserve for retraining. That should be one of the laws maybe, or at least an ethics, a company which is facing the possibility of uh, employees becoming redundant should have the moral uh, you know, thing about uh, setting aside some reserves. So my 
worker level issue, economic level issue, which is only one of the five battlegrounds, the others have nothing to do with this issue per se, uh, is that uh, those who are not AI workers, we have to separate those who will jump on the wagon of AI and be part of this new economy and those who won't for whatever reasons, because you cannot get uh, so many people trained and get them into jobs at various, life, at various points in their life, it just won't happen. So I'm worried about the 500 million, the bottom half of the pyramid. Many of them are surviving because a migrant worker from Delhi or Chennai or somewhere sends them money. Uh, and they, in this negotiation on what happens with AI, what are, who owns, what are the rights and so on of AI, what are the responsibilities, I don't see the labor being sophisticated enough to represent themselves. I don't think they have a voice because they're just not, they're just not aware of what's going on. And the, uh, the, the generally the AI community have done a good job of telling everybody that things are going to be okay, so you don't need to worry. So this retraining business, my question is who will do it? When will they do it? Who's going to pay for it? Especially the older workers. So the, the issue I, I worry about is a very high impact on Indian workers and, and the possible social unrest it could cause. Now there's a good report by Niti Aayog. Now I'm going to shift to those who are going to be on the AI bandwagon. I talked about those who will miss the bandwagon and that's a very serious social disruption. But what about those who are targets to join the AI bandwagon who are these engineers, STEM people, and so on. Niti Aayog is very honest, and I cre credit them for that. They took good stock of this, uh, uh, this thing, uh, you know, the, the, the situation in India. Uh, two and a half to three million STEM graduates a year, but they're doing routine, mundane, low-tech, labor-intensive work, maintenance work. Uh, we used to, I was, you know, I'm much older than you guys. I came to the United States about 50 years ago, as a software guy. And I saw there was no software export industry. I was one of the first, in fact, I was a project manager of the first TCS uh, software project in the United States. I can go into that later. So that, that began and, and then it created credibility. Then the floodgates opened and a whole lot of other people came and so on. So uh, since then, I've seen that it's basically export of labor. It's a labor arbitrage. A lot of people made a lot of money. I have friends who made tons of money just importing, you know, uh, to solve the Y2K bug and all that stuff. Uh, lots of money was made, but we didn't go up the value chain. Uh, so this report names TCS, Wipro, and Infosys, but I think they should name a lot more. For pe as people who kind of milked it, made tons of money, but did not reinvest in high value added. They did not contribute to real research. And, and uh, this is particularly unfortunate because you know these companies are running the guts of united states banks healthcare government manufacturing they are really right in the they're looking at the entire process and automating it so in terms of vertical market application these companies have a lot of it so they should have created watson and automated these they should have said, you know, we know how this bank works because we have uh, so many thousand people working in your bank running the whole IT. So since we are running the IT, the, the brains of your bank, we understand it. So we are going to come up with what this vertical market needs. What is the AI solution for your bank or for your hospital or whatever the establishment may be? I would say people in BPO, people in who are who got large contracts running uh, industries in the United States, uh, the, the backbone of the industry could be the back office or the front office. 
have a unique knowledge about how that vertical market works. We just haven't had the ambition to say, okay, you know what? I'm actually going to go up the value chain and I'm going to, I'm going to supply the turnkey solution. So the, it's, a, it's, a, it's very sad that India as the leader of software now lags behind China as who's the leader of AI. I mean, if we had thought through this, if our people had the vision, our tech companies, their, their leaders had the vision, government had the vision, then starting 15, 20 years ago, we would have said, let's take a certain percentage of all this IT export, software export, body shopping export. Let's put that into AI investments because that's where the future is. This didn't happen. So we are paying the price of that. Now, Indian labor, Indian companies have been addicted to labor arbitrage. That's what I just said. Uh, you know, we sell, we send uh, uh, low sort of one kind of labor to the Middle East. Uh, they, are, they are crane operators, drivers, all kinds of things they're doing, housework. Uh, and we're sending a different kind of labor to United States, different kind of labor. So we are kind of an exporter of raw labor. And this is very sad for me that the country is not thinking big enough. Our people are brilliant. They deserve a chance to be developed into really high value producers. The difference between an Indian who's in the United States and who runs a company and owns equity and his brother sitting in India, there's no difference in brains. It's just that here is the opportunity in this country where people have become owners of technology, whereas in India, the same guys are supplying labor and the technology is owned by the Western country or whichever country, Chinese or whoever owns it. We are supplying raw labor to them, helping them build their technology. And then they are re-exporting the technology back to us. And we are very grateful. The technology would come in the form of uh, fighter jets, uh, you know, for military equipment. That's a lot of it is high technology. A lot of it is software. A lot of it is AI. So it could be embedded in that. It could be in the form of a digital platform. It could be in the form of some social uh, media or whatever form it comes back in. The point is we are giving raw labor, which is the brains for making all this. Somebody else owns the intellectual property. They send it back to us. And we are very proud that we are the largest, the largest installed base of, you know, mobiles or whatever it is, you know, WhatsApp and more Google searches in India than anywhere else. So we are very proud to be the consumer of technology, not the producer of technology. And the irony is that much of this, the labor that went into it is our labor. So this is the second last slide. Uh, so we have to climb the value chain which means from human resource development, which is what the country is focusing on. We also need to have more ownership of big data. And I have a chapter in this book on some big data that we have actually given away. Uh, the, the, the training of algorithms, the understanding of our psychology, what motivates Indians, how to make them fight each other, how to win elections, lose elections, all this Russian inter, uh, in hacking and intervention that happened in the US elections, that kind of a thing can happen, probably is happening in India, certainly in terms of uh, social, political, social, uh, financial, marketing-oriented behavior, it is being managed by these, uh, these uh, social media algorithms with big data on Indians. And, and we don't control it. Somebody else is pulling the strings. Uh, now, train, we need our own trained algori uh, algorithms, training of algorithms, our own turnkey solutions, our own proprietary platforms. I would love to see a project like... Uh, take, uh, you know, uh, send a spacecraft to the moon kind of project. I would like to see it similar to ISRO and similar to Baba Atomic Research Center, a huge establishment 
set up by the Indian government for artificial intelligence and related technologies that come under artificial intelligence. So we would say, okay, have milestones like we need our own social media with X percent market share compared to whatever the foreign media are. I'm not saying like China, we have to ban those guys, but we certainly need to have our own options with significant market share, particularly in Indian languages. And we need to have turnkey solutions like Watson so that uh, we are not just supplying raw data, but high value added. I think that's uh, the, the, the way for the future. And, and my, my conclusion is India must rise as producer of AI technology rather than consumer. Right, right now, we are taking models, a uh, lot of software, a lot of platforms from the foreign countries and making our, making our uh, consumer products, uh, consumer services out of it. But we are not developing original uh, algorithm, original uh, material ourselves. A large part of it has to do with hardware. We have to get into the hardware business, quantum computing. Quantum computing is going to be a force multiplier in AI. So I, I think I, we, uh, I, my time is out, so I will stop. And uh, thank you so much uh, for uh, allowing me uh, this, uh, these few extra minutes. I'm delighted and honored to be here with this wonderful panel, wonderful audience, and I look forward to many more interactions. But I do want you to know, if you want to know more about my book, you can contact me at this place. Thank you, uh, Rajivji, for uh, an excellent talk. Uh, and what a way to end it. India must rise as a producer rather than just as a consumer. And of course, India, with its 1.3 billion people, will automatically become consumers of great technology. But uh, we have to rise up the value chain. We have the potential. We have the intellectual horsepower. We have the demographic dividend. And we have a fast-rising economy, all of which are working towards its favor. So how do we address some of the challenges that you have mentioned in your brilliant talk and be able to surmount those challenges and at the same time be uh, a leader in AI in, in the global landscape. So with that, uh, I'd like to once again thank all the speakers, the panelists. I'd like to thank once again, uh, Mr. Mikhail, Dr. Carl Benedict, uh, Prashant Fatak, um, um, Mr. Sridhar Vembu, uh, Dr. Urvashi Aneja, Mr. Rajiv Sodhi, and uh, Mr. Rajiv Malotra for an excellent session that we have had. I have enjoyed it very much. I'm sure all the audience who have participated, who have listened to you would have enjoyed it. Uh, it was um, uh, a wonderful exchange of opinions, personal opinions, as well as uh, opinions that were uh, very, very relevant to the topic under consideration and discussion. Thank you very much. Be safe. Have a great evening or a great morning or a great afternoon, wherever you are, and do keep in touch. This is Ramanan, Mission Director, Athel Innovation Mission uh, from Niti Aayog. And once again, my thanks to everybody who has participated. <laughs>